Key Aero, your aviation destination. Military Aviation. Hello and welcome to episode 10 of the Air Warrior podcast. I'm your host, Richard Thomas, and this week we are talking environmental and social responsibility following the release of a landmark report by Strategy and, which is PricewaterhouseCoopers' strategy consulting business, into the challenges faced by the aerospace industry in key areas such as net zero and business diversity. All of that coming up a little later on in the show. The news this week. Russian defense company Rostec will unveil a new fighter jet dubbed Checkmate at the MAX 2021 air show on July the 20th, with early images highlighting a stealth single-engine twin-fin stabilized platform reminiscent of Western designs such as the F-35. In a promotional video released ahead of the show, countries such as Argentina, the UAE, India and Vietnam were name-checked, suggesting an intention to sell the aircraft into the wider international market. The MAX Airshow, which takes place at the Zhukovsky International Airport, is going ahead despite the impact that the COVID-19 pandemic has had on airshows and defence exhibitions worldwide, and represents an opportunity for Russia to showcase its aerospace development for the domestic and international audience. The European OCAR organization has signed a grant agreement with Airbus Defence and Space that will allow European Defence Industrial Development Programme funding from the European Union for the planned Eurodrone remote piloted aircraft system. Announcing the move in a July 15th release, OCAR said that the partial financing would now be available for the Eurodrone programme, which is intended to deliver a medium altitude long endurance RPAS into service with a number of European militaries. It is anticipated that the Eurodrone programme will see the development and manufacture of 20 systems in total each comprised of three Eurodrone RPAS and two ground control stations. And finally, in attrition news, a US Navy-operated Sikorsky MH-60S Nighthawk, assigned to the Naval Air Station Fallon Helicopter Search and Rescue Team, crashed near Mount Hogue, California, on July the 16th. The helicopter was carrying out SAR operations in the Mount Hogue area when the incident occurred at approximately 1,700 hours local time, supporting Mono County SAR efforts to locate a lost hiker in the rugged high-altitude terrain of the National Forest south of Boundary Peak, which is around 120 miles south of Naval Air Station Fallon. All four crew members survived the crash without injury. And that was the news. Time now to turn our attention to carbon neutrality, ethical supply chains and diversity in the defence sector. The UK's aerospace and defence firms have been advised to fundamentally rethink how they will navigate current and future environmental, social and governance challenges, according to a new report. Published by Strategy and PricewaterhouseCoopers Strategy Consulting Business, the report, ESG, A Chance to Rethink Strategy, placed a spotlight on diversity and sustainability as some of the most significant challenges for industry in the years ahead, with net zero noted as the biggest of all due to the scale of change required. Joining us is Harry Malins, Director of Strategy Consulting for Aerospace and Defence at Strategy and to walk us through some of the fine details of the report and suggestions for the aerospace industry. Harry, welcome to the show. Thanks, Richard. Thanks for having me. Not at all. Uh, if you could introduce the report, I mean, why was it done? Why was this commissioned? Well, we were conscious that a lot of leaders within aerospace and defence are increasingly focused on ESG. And there are factors like the increasing prevalence of climate change, social inequality, the impact of COVID-19 as well, actually, which are all being amplified through social media platforms that's driving that shift. So in our recent annual CEO survey, 70% of UK CEOs told us that they're concerned about climate change, compared with just 44% in 2019. 
And there are also some really positive signs of change. So 60% of UK CEOs are now planning to increase their investment in sustainability and other ESG initiatives over the next three years. And around a third also noted that they should be doing more to report on their purpose and values and their organisation's impact on wider communities. That trend's there. And we felt that although a lot of people are writing about ESG at the moment, it's still really an area that many in aerospace and defence are grappling with and trying to understand. So we wanted to help resolve that challenge and really try and bridge the gap between high-level ESG thinking and then the more technical literature. We aim to offer a framework to think through and put in place practical business initiatives to address ESG. Okay, so if you could just explain the key findings that we've got from this. Yeah, sure. So our framework really highlights the dimensions that aerospace and defence executives should consider to enable them to break ESG down into this set of manageable initiatives I mentioned. So we found that organisations really need to think through how to integrate ESG into their strategies and operating models to be successful. And we therefore outline a series of recommended steps to get this right. And I think the the sort of key to the report is really that we highlight those areas of ESG that we see as most challenging for aerospace and defence companies. And those are really around getting to net zero, improving diversity and inclusion, and then also ensuring that supply chains are both ethical and sustainable. I mean, you talked about environmental challenges there. And the UK, I think, is trying to, or the UK government, I should say, is trying to ensure that the country is carbon neutral by 2050. How is the defence industry supposed to help government meet this challenge? And is it capable of doing so? It's a real challenge. Government will need to rely on the sector to get there. And if you think about the sort of the language of scopes one to three with um, the sector's scope three emissions, so the products and services developed by the sector being the government's scope one and two emissions, you know, there's a clear role and clear need for collaboration between industry, the UK MOD, and the broader government collaboration to get there. So I think we really, in our report, identified net zero as being the sector's biggest challenge because of the scale of change requires, combined with sort of actually a lack of commercially viable solutions to some of the technical challenges. So we really think that actually organisations within aerospace and defence are going to need to ensure that any of their long-term strategies are compatible with a low-carbon future. It's not going to be about minor adjustments anymore. They won't be sufficient. They'll have to fundamentally rethink what they're doing and how they do it. And that really means they need to start off with a getting a really good understanding of their current greenhouse gas emissions and then forecast how they're going to look in future. They're going to need to set aspirational targets and identify and pull on the levers that they need to achieve that target. So the earlier they get onto that journey, the earlier they start thinking not just about scopes one and two, so their own operations, and start thinking about their supply chains and the products and services that they develop, the better. And part of that is going to be about making sure that they're looking at R&D in a different way. So targeted R&D and also thinking through whether they're going to be those early stage innovators that are at the front of this or whether they're going to be fast followers who are looking at what's happening elsewhere in the sector or who are looking elsewhere to other sectors for, for things that are starting to make positive change. And what about diversity? That's obviously mentioned in the report as well. And the need, I, I suppose it makes sense, doesn't it? The need to harness the capabilities of sectors of the population that are underrepresented in the defence sector. So what's the challenge for industry on that? Yeah, absolutely. I think, as you say, you know, it's not just the right thing to do. 
but it's also, you know, you get a diversity dividend, if you like, and there's plenty of literature out there to show that diverse organisations are more successful across a range of measures. But I think the real challenge is within aerospace and defence, historically, the industry has failed to attract a diverse range of employees. You know, you, you could attribute this to things like entrenched societal issues with the demographic of people studying engineering, for example or limitations on women serving in the armed forces. You know, those sorts of things are fairly entrenched. But I think the scale of the problem shouldn't prevent organisations from tackling the challenge. So if you think about current diversity and inclusion efforts, which tend to focus on gender primarily. So there are things like Women in Defence Charter and Women in Aviation and Aerospace Charter, which are doing great things. But we think that organisations will need to start thinking a bit more broadly about diversity and looking at other characteristics that are underrepresented. So particularly things like ethnicity, disability, and just sort of broader promotion of fairness, really. And I think one thing that has struck us in the last year is we published a report last year, the the Harnessing Innovation in Aerospace and Defence Survey, which found that over a fifth of respondents from the aerospace and defence sector don't plan to introduce a diversity and inclusion strategy, which we thought was quite, quite striking. We really think that actually leaders need to set the tone from the top. They need to demonstrate that they're committed and also inculcate a a culture of inclusion within their organisations. And they need to take visible action. So they need to link diversity to executive remuneration, for example. They need to monitor it with the same rigour as they do financial metrics. And that's going to show that diversity is high up on the agenda and empower the teams and individuals within their companies to take action at a more local level. Yeah, indeed. The report also mentions supply chain challenges to do with ethical supply chains. I confess, I don't really understand what that concept is. So what is that trying to get at? Okay, sure. So, I mean, I think ensuring sustainable and ethical supply chains is, again, it's a really complicated challenge for the sector. And that's why we've got it in our top three. And I think if you think about the impact of an organisation on the environment and on society, that can be multiplied along its supply chain. So there's not only a, uh, an environmental impact, but there is a social impact. And I think there's a real need to place strict requirements on suppliers. And rather than being seen as a burden that's put onto suppliers, this needs to be an opportunity for the supply chain to reinforce purpose. Now, I think one of the challenges of the aerospace and defence supply chain is because of its global nature, it's very difficult to hold suppliers to account. So, for example, there may be use of labour in countries with few employee protection laws where employees within the supply chain are being exploited. So to your question, that's one of the challenges within the supply chain. You know, what does an ethical and sustainable supply chain look like? Well, it's one where employees within the supply chain are treated fairly. I mean, another one, just to take the example of the use of rare earth metals. So they're used a lot in applications like satellite comms, missile guidance systems, things like that. Now, use of rare earth carries a particular risk of exploitation and forced labour in the mining operations within the countries that they're taking place, they can also damage the environment through methods of extraction. So organisations really need to try and strive for full transparency, protect the people at risk, as well as actually protecting their own business reputation. And that's why in the report, we talk about taking a risk-based approach where you concentrate on the areas of the supply chain where there's greater risk of unsustainable or unethical practices. So, for example, you know, countries that score highly on the Corruption Perception Index, for example, could be areas of focus. Interesting. Okay, just finally, given we're talking about 
Aerospace, I wanted to get your thoughts on some recently released targets from the UK Royal Air Force. So uh, Air Chief Marshal Mike Wigston, who's Chief of the Air Staff, speaking at the 2021 Global Air Chiefs Conference on July the 14th, which I think is also the same day that your report was actually released, pointedly referred to key diversity and emissions targets that the RAF is working to implement in the years ahead. Delivering a keynote speech at the start of the event, Wigston said that environmental sustainability, for example, was a growing priority. Quote, I know you're probably thinking it's crazy to hear an air and space chief talking about this. However, the imperative is clear. Our politicians will increasingly demand it of us because our public demands it of us. So he wants the RAF to be net zero by 2040. He wants to double the number of female recruits to 40% by 2030 and see 20% of recruits come from an ethnic background in the same time period. What do you think are some of the factors driving this approach by the RAF? Really interesting. And actually, it was great to hear that within the Chief of the Air Staff's speech the other day. And I think really important to see this being placed at the sort of the heart of the RAF's purpose. Now, I think you mentioned a couple of the factors, you know, the government requires it, but actually more importantly, the public requires it. And the RAF should be an organisation that is, is representative of the standards that society wants to hold it to. It is there as an organisation to serve the public essentially, you know, when you get back to it via the government. So I think that's really important. And it's actually something we talk about a bit within the report as well, of course. So, you know, if you think about the UK MOD's current position, it accounts for about half or over half of the government's greenhouse gas emissions. And it does face significant scrutiny as a result. And as the UK positions itself as a global leader on climate change, which is obviously the right thing for the UK to be doing. So with aviation accounting for something like two thirds of the MOD's fuel consumption and with limited low carbon alternatives, it's quite unclear how the RAF and how the MOD is going to get there. So there is research continuing into developing and maturing synthetic fuels, for example, and they'll deliver sort of 25% to 100% emissions reductions. But adoption is limited by a number of things like cost, availability and the supporting infrastructure itself, which of course is key when there's an operational requirement in particular. So as you mentioned, you know, the Chief of the Air Staff set out the challenge for the RAF to be net zero by 2040, and that really is a challenge. MOD will increasingly need to place greater expectations on its suppliers, as you mentioned at the start of our conversation, if it's going to deliver on that ambition. And you know, just as the RAF is seeing this pressure to adapt and change, and rightly so, you know, the supply chain is feeling the pressure from its customer, but as well as from its employee base, from its investor base, and a number of other stakeholders who all want to see positive change in this direction. Yeah, it's a fascinating report, fascinating to see how the industry and the operators are having to change, but also voluntarily changing in some cases to meet the needs, to meet the new requirements in terms of social responsibility, in terms of environmental responsibility is clearly a very important point in the development of defense industry moving forward. Uh, We'll have to leave it there. Harry Malins, Director of Strategy Consulting for Aerospace and Defense at Strategy and thanks very much for coming onto the show. Thanks very much. For our listeners, if you'd like to learn more about the topics discussed in the podcast or other air domain news, visit the key aero and air international websites. But for now, until next week, thanks for tuning in. This has been a podcast from Key Aero, your aviation destination. Remember, visit www.key.aero for more of the same. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to catch up with you again soon.